Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is a farmer-led podcast, the Farms Vice podcast. So thank you for tuning in. For those that farm it, service it, or just outright love it, we bring you the techniques and technologies you need to motivate and implement into your day to improve it one way or another. Make sure you share the Farms Vice to make another farmer's day. Let's get into this episode. Will Barton, g'day and welcome to the Farms Vice podcast. Great to have you on. Another Name enthusiast down there in the south around Gundagai. How's everything going? Yeah, really well. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to having a yarn with you. Hey, mate. It's, pleasure is mine. I've seen the work that you and the team have been doing, and it's looking pretty great down there. And what you're trying to achieve, go in a new, take your own sort of path into what you want to build your agribusiness in, which is what we find pretty cool on the podcast as well. People doing something different. Yeah. Um, so my, my journey, I guess, I've, I've, I've lived in and around the, the business, which is a, an abattoir. When I was a kid, we sort of processed beef and lamb. Um, and I spent you know, holidays and every spare moment probably hanging around here and as, I, as I got older and what have you. And then I studied food science when I, um, when I left school at CSU in Wagga, which I enjoyed. But then I kind of took a different path and I ended up studying uh, property valuation at RMIT in Melbourne. And what... What that kind of led me into was uh, the world of the valuation of like post farm gate processing assets. So, so I was doing like almond hulling facilities and walnut cracking plants, yep. wineries, abattoirs. Uh, we valued things like, um, you know, oyster sheds that were relying on different oyster leases, and and I, I kind of unconsciously started to learn how different industries approach their supply chains. And that was really fascinating to me because one of the things I'm most passionate about now in this role, which I came to in, in 2014, is 
trying to reimagine the supply chain and, and trying to figure out how we could do the, the producer-processor relationship better. Welcome to today's episode as we speak with the CEO of Gundagai, Liam Wilbarton. He's upbeat and passionate about improving his operations, but also the producers that supply the lamb. Through making these relationships, farmers can go home knowing that they can improve on for the benefits of the consumers, Gundagai lamb as a processor, but also to return home as a farmer full of knowledge. So let's get into this episode with Will. So Will, talk to us a little bit about your background and connection to agriculture. Um, you've done some previous work outside, obviously, of meat processing, but how has that helped you along your way to your role now? So I guess the, the experience that I had in property valuation, looking at lots of different businesses, particularly post-farm grade processing assets and how they, how they interacted with farmers, how they interacted with the producers, how they uh, fed information to them on quality and different elements like that really started to form a lot of the ideas that I have about how to how to make sure that we're doing a better job of interacting with our producers because ultimately if we don't have those producers then we don't have the ability to execute our business plan which is is really about processing um, you know lambs for domestic and export markets yeah great stuff and like previously you talked about trying to improve the supply chain is that improving it by shortening how many hands really touch the product along the way? I think for us, it's a bit more about, and I, and I think it's really obvious, but often overlooked that as the, as, as a, as a processor, we're kind of in the middle of the sandwich that's, that's between kind of the producer and the consumer, right? And if, and I sort of think about us as that tight spot in an hourglass where you might have, you know, hundreds of producers that are supplying one meat processing facility that are then supplying hundreds of consumers, thousands of consumers indirectly. Um, And so for us, it's more about making sure that we're listening to what the consumer wants and that we're telling the producer what that is. So the whole kind of, I guess, ethos of this business as it relates to our own land brand, Gundigo Lamb, is to... One, make sure we tell producers in as much detail as we can what it was that they sent us, so all the objective data we can, and then as a sort of a part two to to tell them exactly what we want them to send us. And and the most obvious way to do that is with pricing, so to tell someone, I'll pay you more if you send me something like this. Yeah, definitely, and supply chains can be quite diverse. Last week we had Noel Answorth talking about fresh food supply chains and I imagine how vastly different it is to working with lamb meat processing can be quite different than what our other sectors of agriculture are doing as well so for yourself how does it all work on your supply chain talk us through it from start to finish so so we've done some some different things I'll I'll give you an overview of how the actual supply chain itself works and then what we're doing in our brand so Essentially, lambs are delivered, let's say lambs are delivered on a Sunday uh, Sunday afternoon, for instance. We process them on day one. They're chilled overnight as carcasses. They're boned out in our boning room on day two. Uh, chilled again in a carton on, on that evening. And on day three, they're really ready for dispatch. We don't, uh, we don't, you don't want them too fresh going into markets. They need a certain number of days, you know, ageing in the bag. 
And so that's typically sort of five to seven days before we want people to be using the product in markets. The real difference about our, our business and our, and our brand going to go lamb is that we've got a range of new technologies. I'll, I'll try to uh, try to explain them to you without nerding out too much and, and losing your listeners. But so, so we've, so if you think about lamb for, you know, 50 years, really the only thing you knew when you were, when you were buying a, a leg of lamb or a rack of lamb or anything else is that, it, it would probably be between six and 12 months of age, and it would probably have come from a carcass that weighs, you know, somewhere between 20 and, you know, 26 kilos, much lighter, you know, a couple of decades ago and sort of heavier today. And we didn't really have any measure like they do in beef of how, uh, how much marbling it had, which is intramuscular fat or, or other traits. It was really just weight. What we've got here is, the ability to measure the lean meat yield of the carcass. So we had the first hot DEXA unit in, in Australia and probably the world in, in uh, lamb processing, which means that for every carcass we process, we understand how much meat, fat and bone is in that carcass. And that helps us uh, share the information with farmers so that they're not over fattening the lamb because there's a lot more energy required to lay a fat on a lamb than there is to grow the meat. And there is a certain point at which um, it becomes wasteful. So there's a sustainability element there for us that, that to help a producer really understand in, in, with good accuracy, so really objectively what the lean meat yield content is. The main risk, though, with telling a farmer that information and getting them to optimise for yield is that if they don't have a, a sort of an eye out for quality, you can breed out quality and, and namely intramuscular fat. So we've, we've also another first for us, we've got the MEQ probe here, which measures intramuscular fat and it's now been Osmet approved. And so for every carcass, we not only know it's lean meat yield, but we also know the level of intramuscular fat. And it is the single most important element in the eating quality outcome of a lamb. So we've got those two pieces of information, which are hugely powerful and don't exist anywhere else yet. Although I imagine they'll be really common in the next year or two across the lamb processing space. Then the third element we've got is animal health. So we record about 20 animal health conditions by carcass. So, you know, years gone by, you'd have arthritis in, in a lamb and so a hind leg would have to be chopped off or you'd have pleurisy in a, in a lamb that would mean its rib cage was removed and a, and a producer would send something to a meat processor. They'd expect that the lambs all would weigh between, you know, 24 and 28 kilos because they weighed them all on farm and then they'd get one back that weighed 19 and then they'd cry foul. Clearly something funny happened with the, the scales and the meat processing plant. And it was all part of this mistrust that existed. Whereas we can tell a producer that that lamb that weighed 19 kilos also had arthritis. And so then they can draw a line that, well, it, it's more than likely that it's lost a limb or two that's created that, that reduction in weight. So for us, the business is really about providing as much information as we can to a, to a producer to help them get better which helps us to deliver the right quality and consistent quality to the consumer, but helps them be more profitable because we're able to pay them more because we know that they're sending us what we want. And, and, and every year they get better on that basis. Yeah, definitely. I, I see like us as land producers as well, um, being fed some information on how we can improve, reduce the fat, increase the fat, or get that yield up a little bit higher. How are you actually feeding back the information? Is it literally via email or how do you do that for the farmers? So we've still got like the traditional feedback form, which is 
you know, the, the weight and, and uh, fat score grid, which is pretty simple, hasn't changed for a number of decades. Everyone's pretty familiar with. We also seen an Excel spreadsheet, which has a line for every carcass. So it's got its RFID, any animal health conditions it's had, weight, lean meat yield, intramuscular fat, et cetera. But we've also got an app. So we've got a producer portal, which producers can log into. It's usually about four or five o'clock in the afternoon on the day of slaughter. And it gives the, the producer all of that information, but in really dynamic kind of visual graphs, it plots all of their data against our averages. So when they look at their intramuscular uh, fat distribution, for instance, it'll also tell them what, what the, the common gun-to-guy-lamb distribution looks like. Yeah. And then the other thing it does is it gives them benchmarking. So it tells them what quartile they're in, in all of our producers. So you've got this... Um, not that I'm discouraging anyone from going to the local pub or from having conversation, you know, with different people in their sphere of influence, but they immediately get feedback on how their intramuscular fat levels uh, compared to everybody else that's supplying us, the lean meat yield. Yep. And we've got this sort of unique quality score called the GLQ score, which pulls that all together into one carcass scoring metric. And so they can also see on our scoring system where they sit relative to their peers, which is, which is really important to get that feedback kind of in a timely, timely way. Yeah, I'd imagine so. And nothing like a neighbour trying to spur you on to improve your yield to beat his crop out of it as well. How, That's right. How have you seen the response from farmers? Have you literally seen it in the products that have come through? You've seen like one farmer's change their approach in the last five years, that sort of well, because we haven't been going for very long, we've really only, we started in 2020 and, and really for the first 12 months, we were, we were sort of doing trials and, and small volumes. We've really been at it, you know, week in, week out since probably June last year. And so we haven't seen that change, you know, generational change yet. What we have seen is a profound change in the attitude of those producers and the way that they look at uh, ram selection in the way that they're, you know, considering how to balance weight, you know, growth rates, lean meat yield outcomes and making sure that they don't forget intramuscular fat because they can see that as a risk if they don't have it, that in future they'll have an inferior product. And so in a lot of respects, it's as simple as, hey, pay attention to this. This is going to become more and more important in the future. For now, we're just using the grading system to sort the, the, the good everyday Australian lamb from the really good high-quality stuff. Yep. Um, but over time, we'll get more and more specific about that and start targeting the, the farmers that are sending us the really, really good stuff all the time. Yeah, and the long, longer time you've been in operation, the better trends you'll start to see. And especially for the farmers as well, they'll get even better feedback on the back of it. What, what's the, the, the most obvious question that we get asked every single time is what's the best breed and, and like which one's giving you the best outcomes? And... It's, it's really interesting internally because there's so many little influences that impact whether or not you're going to get, you know, the right lean meat yield or intramuscular fat outcome. And, and look, breed's part of it, but it's actually really more genetics. So, and, and anyone in the space that spent a lot of time in it and looked really hard at genetics knows that there's, there's really more variation between one breed and another, oh, sorry, inside a breed than there is between one breed and another. So, what we find is that we've got some producers that are, that are sort of find, discovering that the, the years that they've been putting into intramuscular fat development are paying off because now they're getting a measure of it. And we pay a bonus of 50 cents a kilo for any lamb that's got greater than 
5% intramuscular fat. So those producers are really getting rewarded for that now. And then we find other producers that haven't paid any attention to it and they've just fluked it. And their genetics that they've been using for generations is naturally high in IMF. And so they're doing well. Um, and, and so we haven't really seen clear trends about one breed versus another, but we are seeing trends about one producer or one set of genetics that are better than others. And we're building that database so that we can sort of get, become more robust in our thinking, you know, around whether that's a, a fluke or a trend or, you know, what that looks like. The other one is feed. So a lot of people are focused on, you know, how important is feed and how important is maturity and, 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 and those things all play a role. One of the things that we went into spring last year was we were worried, oh, is all the intramuscular fat going to disappear when we start to get into sucker lambs because they're, they're not mature, they haven't been around enough to develop intramuscular fat. And the, the reality is that we probably lost maybe you know half a percent on average in intramuscular fat, but we still had suckers that were performing extremely well in intramuscular fat, and we still had lambs that were performing really badly, and we still had lots in the middle. And so the learning from that is that Yes, on average, a lamb when it's born has less intramuscular fat than it does at maturity, and that makes sense. But it doesn't mean that there isn't genetics that will deliver a high IMF lamb straight off, uh, straight off the ewe as a sucker. So there's there's all these little things that we're learning along the way, which are really interesting. Yeah, and it's all those sort of one percenters. Everyone speaks about one percenters, but you you've also got yours there as a processor. How? Those one percenters can impact you, but also the producers that bring in the lamb for you to process as well. Yeah, and and we we this is really the beginning of what we're trying to do. So we've got these really simple measures, but we hope that in the next few months we'll also have primal yield measurements, so we'll be able to provide feedback on confirmation. So the ability to say this this had the right lean profile, the right IMF profile, and you know some people would say, well, it's all well and good to have you know eating quality and yield, but what if the loin and the rack are really tiny and they've got big legs and, you know, shoulders? And so we're in, we'll be in a position very soon where, and we've been working on, you know, a way to get our technology to, to measure primal yields. And once that's in place, then we'll set a, a metric around rewarding, you know, higher proportions of rack and loin primal yields as a proportion of total weight and, and probably penalising on the other end, you know, lambs that are coming through that have got small proportions there where a lot of the value is for us. And that's one of those one percenters for us as a processor is making sure that when we buy a whole carcass, it's got the right the right amount of meat in the right areas to, to maximise our, our profitability. Yeah, definitely. And like just before, you said you started in 2020. What month? Uh, so I think we started, we'd, we'd been talking about it through 2019 and, I, and we had a crack at it sort of through February, March 2020. Yep. Um, and and we and we did some trials and you know I looked back with my team, uh, some of the guys that are working the team have only been with us for sort of six or nine months, and I, I showed them some of the early grid ideas that we had for for pricing grids, and they're pretty out there and they look pretty silly now when we look back on them because we had some crazy ideas in 2020 when we when we sort of really got into it last year in, in mid 21. Uh, we've refined it down to a five by five grid. So we've got five weight ranges and we've got five lean meat yield uh, brackets, if you like, or boxes. And then we've, so it's, there's 25 price points on the grid with a bonus for intramuscular fat in any of those categories. 
Um, and we've certainly yeah, come a long way since we started, for sure. I bet. So in 2020, what was going on across the world? What spurred you on to unleash GMP? Well, I think so. So the, the business GMP has been around for, you know, well, nearly uh, nearly 50 years. So we're, we're a couple of, couple of years away from a 50-year anniversary. And, and we've spent most of the, the 2000s and the 2010s as a fee-for-service-only plan. So we just did contract processing for, for, for clients. Um, and, and really, the... The reason we got into the tech and the reason that we've sort of have evolved this brand Gundy Guy Lamb into something in the last couple of years is that um, we had obviously a drought period where, you know, typically the livestock prices would, would reduce through a drought. But what we saw was the rise of the China market and that had a really strong influence on keeping those protein prices and those livestock prices high, particularly in lamb. And we don't have a China, we don't have China market access. So... Mm-hmm. Because of that, that's great. Off for enemy. Yeah, right. There we go. It's off now. No worries. So, because we didn't have that that China market access, we really needed to look at ways to overcome that that competitive disadvantage by not having market access and find new ways to create value in the supply chain. And, and that really led us to kind of stare into what the things were that the consumer needed how to make the producer-processor relationship, well, how to build trust, but, but how to make it more efficient. So to give really good feedback to a land producer about what it is that we wanted and, and, and importantly, what it is that we'd be willing to pay more for. Because yeah. that queue hasn't existed in land production systems for a long, long time. Like there's more, it, it, almost, if you look at any agricultural commodity, there's a, there's a quality measure that allows a producer to get paid more, whether it's protein level, whether it's milk solids, whether it's uh, microns. There's always a measure that says, if you, if you give us this, we'll pay you more. Beef the same. Lamb just hasn't had it. And so we thought if we were going to overcome some of those market access limitations that our business had, then we needed to sort of get cracking on, you know, really trying to redefine what that looked like. And that's what we tried to do with the Gunning Island Lamb brand. And, and we're kind of in our infancy, but we're, we're chipping away at now. And I think, you know, we're building the right momentum. Yeah, definitely. And pushing in, I think, like, as consumers, like, changing tastes out there and we're all wanting quality meat, red meat especially, um, for that and just sort of bolsters what you're doing at Gundagai Land there um, and how you're improving the whole process, not just what you're doing with your own supply chain, trying to improve yeah. farms as well. well I think the, the one of Lamb's big challenges from a consumer point of view is that it's become very expensive. Yep. So you know you've got a you've got a product that's that's pricing itself incredibly high in terms of where it sits relative to other proteins, and it's it's challenged by in some markets that price point. And if if you're able to put a like a, an objective quality claim behind it or an objective measurement of quality to, to, to then convince a purchaser that that's, a, that's worth spending their money on because it's going to perform in a certain way, that becomes much easier for, for the product as a, you know, for that category, say, in a marketplace. But when you've got a high-price protein like lamb in a marketplace and you've got 
randomly, some are better than others because of objective attributes that the industry is not measuring. Then that becomes a real challenge for the market because what you're relying on is the age of the animal, which is a which is, don't don't get me wrong, it's been a very successful you know quality gatekeeper for the last fifty years is that it's lamb, not not mutton. So that that in and of itself works well. But now that we've got technology to go a step further, if you're really trying to command those high prices for the product, you, you've sort of got to be able to justify that it's going to, you know, perform the way that you'd like it to perform when it gets to market and, and not disappoint a consumer because in some markets that are emerging, uh, like the US, for, in, in, for instance, is they, they've sort of, they went off land, you know, for their, their sheep population has been in decline. I think there's more now more lambs in the Riverina than there are in the whole of the United States. You're right. Yeah. So you've got this this whole nation that's kind of turned their back on on, on sheep meat and yep. lamb uh, historically, and they're being re-educated. So they're they're starting in the last few years. They've really started to eat a lot more lamb, which is great news for the Australian market. Really well covered by you know, market analysis that you get through the MLA and Mercado and others like that. The challenge you have, though, is if you're getting a generation of people that are, that are a lot of going on, maybe we should eat lamb, they have a bad experience. You might only have one shot at that consumer. So if you're trying to build momentum and you've got the ability to objectively measure quality and you can set the expectation right, and then you can meet that expectation, that's really powerful. Um, and so, so that's different. In a way, to say if you were if you were putting meat into the Middle East, where they're really really familiar with how to cook lamb, they know sheep meat, they know lamb, they know how how to cook it, how to prepare prepare it, their expectation around how it's going to perform and how to how to um, how to cook it in a way that will almost guarantee that it performs the way that they'd like it to by different cooking methods. That means that it's much there's much less risk. In, in certain elements there, whereas if you're in a new market trying to charge a lot of money, then you want to make sure you get it right. And that's really what we're trying to focus on with the other thing about lamb bread is this ability to be able to say to a chef or a consumer that will eat well, and not just because it looked good hanging on a rail in a carcass chiller, but because we measured it. Yeah. yeah. So that's exciting. Yeah, it's exciting and it's pretty interesting. Like I always see a lot of more marketing swung towards beef and that industry and i see that like as a lamb producer i feel that lamb is lacking in trying to educate and get onto the plates of um of consumers because i think like people sit down and they just picture a steak rather a lamb steak or a lamb chop they just want easy eating um and they've grown up with steaks beef steak um so i reckon there's a lot of work to be doing and but you as a processor, you're doing a lot of that work as well just to keep it relevant and also chase different lines and improving the quality. Um, there's a lot that can be done for consumers to be able to uptake the lamb as a red meat. Yeah, and I think I think it comes back to the, the expectation of, of that consumer. Like a lot of people are daunted by lamb. Um, they find that it's going to be, you know, something that maybe requires a lot of effort or a lot of time or they're not sure how to cook it. And in part, I think that comes from the variability in eating quality that exists in those lamb cuts. So if you go out and you pay a lot of money for a leg, um, 
and for whatever reason it doesn't eat as well as as you as you think it might you're most likely to blame yourself or your cooking methodology or that you're not a good enough you know home chef or whatever that is rather than um know that i bought a good one or a bad one because all legs are the same so if you transfer that into a situation where you you set the expectation for a consumer that they're buying something that's either the best or not the best and then they approach cooking it accordingly so they say i know like if you go to beef and you buy a cheaper cut you know having bought that cheaper cut that there are certain things that you might do in terms of your cooking method or whether you marinate it overnight and slow cook it or whether you you know, chuck it on a barbecue and, and, and you adjust your methodology based on the quality of the cut that you've purchased. And, and that's, that's helped beef enormously over the last yeah. 20 or 30 years with MSA because people, it's very hard to get a bad steak at an Australian pub or restaurant because we've got, you know, supermarkets. Everything's improved dramatically because of MSA grading and, and that ability to see these, these, these traits and measure them. So I think that's what's exciting about lamb is that, um, and and it, and it helps people that are rediscovering lamb have more consistent experiences, so that they're not sort of set up to fail or or, or they've paid a lot of money and then feel that they haven't got what they paid for, which is, well, I guess, a big part of what we're trying to do is really get people back into lamb and know what they're doing and, and become more familiar. What's been really interesting, Jack, is that the point about there doesn't seem like there's as much energy in lamb as there is in beef or those kinds of things. We haven't, as a business, been involved in buying livestock and selling meat. We sort of had a 20-year break where we were just exclusively the feed-for-service processor. So we didn't have... Um, we weren't buying our own livestock, we weren't selling our own meat, and we've only really been back into it with going to lamb for a year or two. And what's... Uh, What's been interesting about that journey is really retesting some of the things that are commonplace, like all heavy lambs are exported. Why? Is it because the consumer's worried about them being too fat? We can measure fat. We can ensure they don't have too much fat because we've got this DEXA machine. Um, And so there's lots of things that you can retest once you can see objectively what they look like because you've you've gone from being so you test a lot of old paradigms and, and, and re-involve yourself in those things which is really i find it really interesting and i think we've got a lot of catching up to do in lamb um on yeah. on other on other market sectors the the people like the mla have have just as much information about markets in beef as they do lamb they've got a, they've got a similar level of um consumer taste testing so they've got They've got most of the same modelling in those markets and they're an amazing resource globally in the MLA for information about trends and what have you. What's been lacking is the ability to objectively measure the traits that then feed into an MSA model or feed into, well, this this particular cut with this quality is going to play better in, you know, the EU or the US or, or Southeast Asia or the Middle East. And so... What's, what's really happening now is that as those things come together, they're really quickly making it easy to capitalise on a lot of MLA research and insights, a lot of research in consumer taste testing with the MSA. Now that objective measurement's catching up, we're, we're, we're on a really accelerated path towards improvement, in my view, really revolutionising the lamp supply chain as we've, as we've known it historically. Yeah, both for domestic and like 
international export? Yeah, for sure. Yep, definitely. Most definitely. They're, they're two very different markets and we've been, you know, growing our reliance on export markets. I think COVID's probably helped a lot of us refocus locally or, or, or readjust uh, the balance a little bit. But there's certainly opportunity in, in both spaces, particularly because it's not... It, it's not a protein that's that's sort of overused or oversubscribed or saturated. Like, so it's not it's not the sort of thing you see on a menu and you think, oh, I'm sick of seeing so many lamb options. It's 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 one of those things that's got a lot of scope for growth um, if you can approach it right. And so, yeah, I think domestic and export, there's there's lots of opportunities in in both for for sure. Yep. Yeah, I think so. I think it's like an exciting space. It's not actually like a product. It's not like buying an Apple iPhone, but it's a lamb that everyone's trying to improve and you're trying to get that onto consumers' plates, like in mass type of thing. So it's pretty exciting to see how slight tweaks to what's going on, like the MSA, uh, the data that you get back from yourself as a processor and also for the farmers, how those slight tweaks can actually improve the how the consumers receive it on their end. Yeah, well, you're, you're taking something, and when we find this with producers who have been looking at this stuff for a long time, they've they've come from, you know, like let's say you've got a stud breeder who's also got a commercial flock and they're really interested in the data and they've been working hard to select sires and, and genetics and different things and improve their lean meat yield. They've got an eye for intramuscular fat, mating quality and shear force and all of these metrics. And those, those businesses have historically to get the data, they've had to do trials. And so they, they participate in like nucleus flock trials with Meat and Livestock Australia and, and they've had to do sort of expensive and time consuming trials to get the data. Whereas now it's just become, certainly in, in the Gundagai lamb supply chain, it's just default data. So it's gone from being something that's relatively inaccessible that needed to go through a lab and, you know, had costs involved and you had to participate in programs, all of which are still relevant, but now it's sort of something that's just for every man. So every producer that sends something to us has the ability to improve uh, her or his flock and then come back next year and see the results. So... That's another thing that's going to be really interesting is for the people that have paid a lot of attention in the last nine months and maybe made some different decisions on farm, for them to come back next year and say, oh, I've noticed that, or oh, that didn't make as big a difference as I thought it would, or, or that, you know, that those decisions that I've made historically have been vindicated or, or not. And, and so the, the ability to get information to actually make decisions and then see what you're doing, because if you're cropping you can almost immediately tell the difference. Seasonal variations aside, yeah. a new variety, uh, a new fertilizer rate, a new planting rate, a new, a new, you know, a new, a new air seeder, all these things with all the mapping, your mapping, and all those different things, you can kind of get almost real-time feedback. Now, again, interrupted by seasons, and you say, oh, if I think they've had a bit more rain, then maybe that would have done this or that or the other. But but we haven't had that in lamb. We've just said, get it to the weight, get it to the weight before it breaks its teeth, send it to market, job done. And so that dynamic shift, I think, will help, particularly the producers that really want to get better, 
I'll get the data, get better. The consumer will say, can you keep sending me that stuff? Because it's great. And then value increases everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true though. Like droppers don't know, broad acre don't know how good they have it when they want to improve something drastically. Livestock generally you've got only one chance a year to improve as well as croppers as well. But for that, you're probably going to see the impact in five years if you're trying to chase some some other trait that's going to improve your eating quality. That's right. That's right. And so the reliance on, which is real across the entire ag space, but the reliance on, you know, long-term R&D and funding for those things and, and nucleus flock trials that help continually, I guess, measure what's happening and what, what genetic developments and improvements are working and what breeds are doing better than others, all that, all that all what lines in breeds are doing particularly well. That becomes really important. And, and also putting the, the bulk data behind it then at our level just really bolsters all of that. It takes it from pilot level data from little trials that are done that, are, that we're trying to scale up to make them representative of something. Yep. They don't have to do that anymore. They're, just, they're now going to be accompanied by huge data sets that allow people to say, well, that worked, but that didn't do it. And... The other thing I think that's really interesting about it is that when we started thinking about it, we thought everything was going to be about high IMF and the opportunity created by like really high marbled product. So think like Wagyu or, you know, some sort of really high end product. And that was sort of really my early thinking through 2019 and 20 was really focused on, you know, the idea that we might, that we might find this super high marbling Kind of outcome and that's really evolved a lot because now we we think more about imf low imf as a risk rather than seeing high imf as this huge opportunity and so now we kind of think well we've just got to really make sure we avoid low imf because or or, or not avoid it but but really start to breed it out over time yeah. so that we can continue to receive the high prices that we do for high quality land as a category and therefore continue to you know pay farmers well for what they're producing so there's been lots of little evolutions like that where we change our thinking you know we we've, we're very curious we we don't have anywhere near all the answers we've got more questions than answers and, and it's it's good fun really actually to be part of it because every day is a new day where we sort of get curious about things and go down rabbit holes and you know test test old um I guess old ways of working and say, can we do that better? And why do we do it that way? Is that, you know, what's that about? Can we measure that differently? And, and I think that's a really good message to be sending back to particularly uh, younger, well, to farmers that have been at it for a while. Yep. We're going to start recognising those efforts. For younger people thinking about it, the amount of opportunities now in businesses like ours to work on these things, either, either, in a processing plant, on farm, advising farmers, all those things creates lots of opportunity in an industry that once was get it to wait, get it to wait quickly with the appropriate amount of condition and make sure you do it before it breaks its teeth. Yeah. There's a lot going on and it's as it should be that you're staying curious and always asking questions, why this, why that. Uh, it's always good to challenge the older blokes if dad's listening. Um, <laughs> it's important, but also, like, as you said before, you can't just drop it straight off. You have to sort of taper off 
um, on those traits as well. Otherwise, you may see some impact somewhere else. Look, that's the so as a business as well. That's been the really pleasing thing about, and, and look, we're focused so hard in our partnership with MEQ Pro, who, who measure our intramuscular fat level. You know, a DEXA, the, the lean meat yield management tool, was had a long lead time, and it took a lot to commission and get it into the plant and get it working. And 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 there was this fear that grew as we got closer and closer to commissioning the DEXA unit that we would be able to send uh, signals to producers about their lean meat yield, but we wouldn't have a measure of intramuscular fat. And that fear was that if we, and, and, and it required a bit of restraint really because uh, we make more money as a processor out of higher yielding products, full stop. We buy a carcass for the whole carcass and the more fat it has on it, the more fat that ends up on the burning room floor and the less meat that ends up in the box. So on simple kind of maths or logic, the leaner it is, the more money we make. But there is a tipping point if it doesn't, if it's not accompanied by, well, if it's not finished or it's not accompanied by intramuscular fat, that it won't taste at all, like it will taste bad. So once DEXA got close, we, we started to get nervous and like we really need to crack eating quality. We really need to crack intramuscular fat so that we can give farmers both because chasing one in isolation is, is quite dangerous. If you create a really high lean meat yield carcass that's got no intramuscular fat, bad outcome for the, for the person eating it, right? It's not going to eat well. If you chase intramuscular fat and you do it by lot feeding something for 200 days and, and, and you don't pay attention to lean meat yield, then you could create the most, most beautifully marbled eye muscle that you've ever seen in your life. But if it's got 40 mil of fat cover, it's not much good to us either because we're paying for all this stuff that we're going to trim off. So that balance is something that's going to be a huge challenge for, for producers in the next five to 10 years for people to really nail that. And, and we're really getting a lot of interest from people that really want to nail that, that combo. And so, yeah, that's, that's exciting to be around as well. It definitely for the um, for the land that comes in, feed blotting and grass fed. What's the split on that? Do you know? Certainly, this season overwhelmingly grass fed. Yep. And I and I think that's that that is a that is a seasonal dynamic. Plenty of grass around this year. Plenty of rain, and so the yeah that that that's an overwhelming kind of stat that it's mostly grass-fed. Obviously, there's a bit of finishing going on in, in, in the grain-fed space. I think the market in, in lamb certainly still favours a grass-fed production system. Yeah. Uh, beef, you know, people are probably a little bit more used to to, to grain feeding or grain fi finishing. And, and the US market, for instance, is they like to feed just about everything in their production system in, in lamb. It's all grain fed, but it's sort of still something we're trying to navigate our way through just how practical it is through different seasons to have a have a brand that's that's exclusively or, or even just a brand channel within the brand yeah. sort of architecture that has a, a grass fed claim because I think it's ideal from a consumer point of view, but it's not necessarily practical from a production point of view. And I and I and I also wonder whether 
the market might be more accepting of a grain-fed product if they knew that it was grain-fed to an appropriate amount of fat with the appropriate amount of animal health measurement in place. So, you know, you, you rethink that. You think, why is a consumer, you know, not a big fan of grain? Is it is it the confinement? Is it is it that they think there's an adverse animal health outcome? Is it that they that they're concerned about, you know, an over fattened animal and so if you can address a few of those things by saying well actually we measure those things and we make sure they're not out of step then you might be in a situation where it becomes less less important but that will absolutely be driven by the consumer and 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 the producer with our help will have to try to figure out how to deliver to whatever that expectation yeah is it just comes back to the work that has to be done for lamb to be up. Would you say it's the top three proteins within Australia, lamb? Well, I guess it depends on, on how you look at it. Certainly by value on a per kilo basis, it, it is. Uh, and, and we're in a flock rebuild mode. So, you know, on that basis, it, it's certainly up there. But, yeah, I don't really know how it would, how it would compare on a, on the other metrics by which you you might measure it, I think it's still certainly for our region still a go-to part of a mixed enterprise, and we're really conscious, particularly in mixed farming areas, that that people really have the opportunity to, you know, put grapes on the side of a hill, run cattle, run sheep, crop. There's a lot of different enterprises that that you can go to. And I think to encourage people to make a decision to go into land, they need to, they need to see businesses that are committed to setting, setting the space up for future success. They need to see someone that's saying, right, we're going to change this. We're going to give you better feedback. We're going to help you make you profitable because it's in our interests and your interests. And that confidence is really important so that we don't find ourselves, you know, with a, with a region that's, that's sort of gone really heavy into cattle or really heavy into cropping or so we've got to I guess in some senses fight to demonstrate that that lamb's a really valid choice and you know I think I think we're doing that at the moment but but through seasons through you know good times and bad times through market cycles through the Aussie dollar cycles all those things we've got to keep making sure that we're standing up and saying this is a good choice because you know, land is finite, uses are developing, you know, yields are improving, whether it's red meat production or, or, or cropping, everything else is getting better. So if you don't keep pace with that, farmers will, yeah. will just move to what, what best suits their land, but what also they can sustain a family on and, and, and drive profit with. So we've got to make sure that we're making it clear to producers how they can be profitable with land, to, you know, to make sure we're still relevant. Yeah, that's it. I think we might have to reach out to Sam, catch a bit. Pekovic, the other 364 days of the year to improve <laughs> lamb. Um, he, d- he does a stellar job for the one day in the week leading up to it, but I think there's a lot of work to be done outside of Australia Day. Yeah, that's for sure. And and that's just another dynamic of, of lamb. It's become something that people eat either, you know, for a special occasion rather than yep. the regular Sunday roast that we grew up with. So, you know, all those things provide challenges and and... And they're all welcome challenges because I think if you if you really want to be successful, you've got to have a go at solving some of those 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 market perceptions by 
by trying to innovate and change the way that you're you're approaching it. Yeah, definitely. Which for us is that quality piece here. Yeah. yeah, we'll probably have to start selling loin chops through Uber Eats just to get consumers thinking about lamb again. That's it. I'm not sure what the wait time would be on a lamb chop for, from Uber Eats in, in Gundagai or, or south of Dubbo, but I, I don't know that it would come very quickly. Yeah, I won't hold my breath. But, mate, a stat I pulled off the website, pull me up if it's wrong, you process 1 million animals a year? Yeah, broadly, that's our, that's our production capacity, yep. You've got 250 employees. Yes. So that's 4,000 animals processed per employee. I did some quick math before the show. Yeah, yep. That's pretty that good. Makes sense. Yeah, across, across, across a year, um, yeah. we're obviously facing, like everybody in agriculture, and I think basically everybody in Australia, extreme challenges around labour. So yeah. this year we won't process that many, and that's a real that's a concern for us because we're at a year where we've got more lambs than we've had for a while to process and less capacity to do that. Um, and that's a real challenge for the brand too as we're growing and we're getting people interested. We're finding ourselves uh, often really oversubscribed for the yep. for the grids that we're putting out. Uh, but, you know, we, yeah, we're, we're welcoming the fact that, you know, in the last few days that the, the borders have opened up and we're starting to get a few backpackers through and different things that will, you know, help, help man all sorts of different tasks in the ag space and, and particularly in our business so that we can get back to that kind of productivity level that, that you see on the website. Yeah, but like all good things, good things take time. Um, so take it steady. And the way you're running it, the way you've come across on the podcast today, um, it's pretty exciting to have you at the helm of Gundagai Lamb, but also having input in the broader aspect of what Australian lamb is. Thanks, Jack. Yeah, appreciate that. So... Let's keep Lamb the top of conversation right across Australia. But before you go for this episode, who is someone else that you'd like to hear on the Farms Advice podcast? Look, I, I think there's there's lots of people out there that are interesting. Probably the person that I found most interesting, and it's just part of where I've been in my kind of journey with the brand over the last six months, is a, a lady by the name of Heidi Wright. She runs a company called Wright Social, and She's really focused on the ag space, on, on rural businesses and, and farmers who are, you know, trying to reach, I guess, the, the, the widest and most relevant audience through social channels. And we've been working with them on, on how we sort of communicate what we need to to various places. And I, I find that whole space, and you're in it, so, you know, in the world of podcasts, you know, all of all of the all the weird and wonderful things that go on in the background that, that optimize and, and create access and, and give you the best outcomes. And I I think a yarn with her would be really fascinating for some people to learn how uh, how they how they could use social media to either you know further their their cause if they've got their own brand or their own thing they're trying to get out there, but also how they how they interact with social media and how that affects what their experience is on social media. So how they kind of, they, you get back in social media what you, what you engage with or what, what, you, what, what you kind of put out. So I, I, I just reckon that would be a, a bit of an out-of-the-box one for your listeners to, to kind of have a, a bit of an insight into that world for sure. Great one, mate. And also for anyone that wants to reach out to yourself, how can we do so at Gundagai Lamb? So we're all, all, all the social, so, you know, LinkedIn, 
Instagram, Facebook, we're just there as Gundy Guy Lamb. Yep. Uh, I think probably the other way on the, on our website. So if you go to gundyguylamb.com.au, there's a form to fill out that comes immediately to the team and we usually sort of pick up the phone in the, in the next 24 hours and get in touch with producers if they're curious. Or And we're always running events on, like tomorrow we've got a, a producer event all day where we're giving them a plan tour, talking about the, the tech and innovation and, and talking about animal health improvements and that sort of stuff. So certainly get in touch through any of those channels and, and we have a have a, a conversation about how we might be able to work together. Beautiful. No worries. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk soon. Thanks for tuning in to a Farms Advice episode. Go to farmsadvice.com.au for more information and spread the word. If you love this episode, give it a sneaky five-star review on Apple Podcasts so we can reach more farmers right across Australia. But until then, next Tuesday, keep on farming. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.